business interruption claims in the COVID-19 pandemic, prevention of access and recent FCA court guidance. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bellamy, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. My insurance and reinsurance practice comprises litigation, arbitration and advisory as counsel. This work covers all issues arising in policy interpretation and coverage relating to the full range of indemnity and contingency policies and financial lines covers. I have extensive experience of business interruption claims before and after the COVID-19 pandemic. My experience includes policies governed by recognized civil law systems and other common law systems. I also have an active practice as a chartered arbitrator in this sector. Further details may be found on my chamber's website at 39essex.com, together with the insurance practice details of my colleagues in chambers. This podcast is part of the 39 Essex Chambers Outlook, commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series. In this episode, I will review the common themes identified and the general guidance given by the court in relation to business interruption claims arising from the COVID-19 pandemic and the government responses to it. There will be further following podcasts on disease clauses, trends clauses, and causation in this series. The full 162-page, 580-paragraph recent judgment in the FCA case addresses the points arising on various policy wordings. It's available online via the FCA website. During this podcast, I will give you paragraph references so that you can pause the podcast when reading the judgment, if you so wish. The purpose of the podcast is to pick out common themes and guidance given in relation to claims brought under prevention of access covers. It is necessarily selective, even within the prevention of access topic. If there is additional specific disease cover or hybrid cover based on both disease and prevention of access, separate considerations apply. First then, the FCA test case itself. This was a test case when judgment was handed down on the 15th of September 2020 before a two-judge first-instance court hearing it under the QBD financial list procedure. The court was Lord Justice Flo and Mr Justice Butcher. The case was brought by the FCA against eight insurers and two intervening parties regarding 21 lead policy wordings. The FCA has estimated that a further 700 types of business interruption policy across 60 different insurers and up to 370,000 policyholders could be affected by the test case. The case was brought at high speed. Proceedings were started on the 9th of June 2020. The whole proceedings and trial took place remotely. Today, the FC published on its website that both it and insurers had yesterday filed leapfrog applications to appeal to the Supreme Court. The text reads that the FCA continues to work closely and at speed with the eight insurers and two interveners that participated in the test case to reach an agreement in principle on a range of issues 
whereby an appeal process would not be required and payments would be made on eligible claims as soon as possible. Positive discussions, it says, continue with all parties. The recent FCA case gave guidance on the following clauses. First, disease clauses under Section D of the judgment. Second, disease hybrid clauses under Section E of the judgment. And third, prevention of access clauses under Section F of the judgment. Important guidance was also given on issues relating to the construction and operation of trends clauses in all these categories and on the question of causation. This podcast follows webinars uh, in which I participated both before and after the FCA decision. Copies of these webinars are available as recordings on the Chamber's website. The webinars were on the 2nd of June 2020 and on the 22nd of September 2020. On both occasions, participants were from solicitors, in-house counsel, insurers, reinsurers, Lloyd's Market, brokers, loss adjusters, commercial policyholders, and business owners. And practice areas and business sectors represented included the whole gamut of categories referred to in the FCA case, from construction, commercial, retail, hospitality, sport and entertainment, and education. So I'll I'll, uh, focus first on general principles, what was described by the court as some common themes arising out of the various policy wordings under consideration. It's relevant and important to note that the general principles of contractual construction to be applied by the court were agreed between all counsel and all parties. You can see that at paragraph 62 of the judgment. Indeed, that section provides a a useful general synopsis of the modern principles of contractual construction. There are, of course, particular considerations which apply to contractual construction in the insurance coverage sphere. In general terms, the uh, court confirmed all the modern approach to construction of clauses and were at pains to emphasize the difference between clauses which described the scope of an insured peril and the delineation of risk on the one hand and to what might be called exclusion clauses. It's also important to bear in mind that the court rejected arguments that clauses which could be described as exclusion clauses should be in interpreted in a particularly restrictive or so-called contraproferentem manner. The second important common theme is that for all its length and emphasis on common themes, the court reiterated the obvious point that the devil is in the policy wording. The structure of the judgment is to give uh, some general guidance where possible on each of the topics, and then to go into the various policy wordings in depth. It was that point which we emphasised in our webinar on the 2nd of June, and that point remains good thereafter. The following, therefore, inevitably are principles of general application, but are always subject to the specific policy wording. A third common theme is that most business interruption policies 
do have a material damage provision. That's clear from paragraph 80 of the judgment. This, of course, was not in dispute between the parties, but with all the emphasis on non-damage business interruption claims uh, at the moment during the COVID-19 pandemic, and for the purpose of this podcast, specifically prevention of access, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves that these are exceptions to a general rule. The general rule being that material damage is required. And the whole approach to this area should bear that in mind. And unsurprisingly, the court reiterated that provision. All clauses, therefore, are ultimately exceptions to a more general rule. That does not mean that they should be interpreted restrictively to preserve any general rule. But what it does mean is that the general rule should be borne in mind. Fifthly and finally, on general principles, the court rejected on a number of occasions and in a number of different ways various insurer arguments that would have resulted in what the court itself described as illusory cover. Good example of that may be found at paragraph 281. Uh, and in general terms, the rejection of the insurer's arguments about what should be stripped out of the counterfactual analysis under the trends clause. See, for example, paragraph 283. And as I've already said, that will be the subject of a later 39 Ethics Chambers podcast. So on a number of occasions, the court was keen to emphasize that if a, a policyholder brought itself within one of these exceptional forms of cover, then what should be what was given with one hand should not be taken out with the other. I'll turn then now to discuss the specifics um, of uh, prevention of access clauses as discussed in the recent guidance. The first point is that it was agreed um, between all parties uh, and approved by the court that it was not necessary in a prevention of access case for the policyholder to prove physical impossibility of access. A second point, and a very important aspect of this judgment, is the uh, importance of distinguishing between, on the one hand, prevention of access, and on the other hand, prevention of use. Again, The importance of this distinction will depend upon the policy wording itself, but the court were at pains to describe, for example, at paragraph 327, the following. It was, the court said, important not to conflate hindrance and access with use. In many cases, restrictions on movement did not prevent access to chambers and other premises that remained open. An example is, as I've said, chambers and many law firm offices. Most clauses, therefore, attach to the question of access rather than the question of use. A further point is that it's important to consider the nature of the policyholder's business as described in the policy schedule at the time of contract. Key paragraphs there are 326 and 327. And the examples given there about 
businesses such as restaurants that started to do takeaway business for the first time after the imposition of COVID-19 restrictions. The closure, the court said, of the premises for the purposes of carrying on the business as defined in the policy schedule is what is important. And it used that approach to reject insurers' arguments, for example, that theatres that had started online productions or restaurants that had started takeaways after the imposition of conditions continued in business. Probably the most singly important point is the emphasis the court placed on the need to analyse fully and rigorously the nature of the insured peril. And here, important references for you, uh, paragraphs 309, 385 to 387, 389, 404, and 471. The court said this, that on a proper analysis of these insuring clauses, as with others which the court is considering, the insured peril is a composite one involving three interconnected elements. First, prevention or hindrance of access to, or on occasions use of, the premises. Second, the need for action by government. And third, that such was due to an emergency which could endanger human life. The court said for cover to be triggered, that composite peril must have caused the interruption of or interference with the business. And a key paragraph is 385. So picking up on those three points. First, the court gave a ringing endorsement to insurers' arguments about the criticality of the distinction between, on the one hand, prevention uh, and hindrance, and on the other hand, interruption. It approved previous case law, and on this point, the FCA was, at least at present, uh, the losing party. Several quotations will give you a full flavour of the distinction between prevention and, on the other hand, hindrance, and on the other hand, interruption. The court said, paragraph 330, anything short of complete closure will not constitute prevention of access. 431, the touchstone of prevention is impossibility, whereas hindrance connotes that access is rendered particularly difficult. 326, what has to occur is closure of the business, as defined in the policy schedule. And finally, at 330, anything short of complete closure will not constitute prevention of access. It's not surprising that the court reached this conclusion, given the existence of the previous case or on the topic, but I say again that there we have a ringing endorsement of the distinction between the different terminologies. I'll move then to the second uh, aspect identified uh, by the court in relation to prevention access, and that's actions or advice by government. The first point that the court stressed is that To be uh, a trigger under a policy, the action or advice must have the force of law. And it contrasted the uh, action and guidance given under the 21st of March 2020 regs and the 26th March 2020 regs against guidance given by politicians, including the Prime Minister, from time to time. The court said, paragraph 497, it is only something which has the force of law which can prevent access. This, of course, is a continuing and potentially increasingly difficult aspect given the way in which 
advice about COVID-19 has developed over time and indeed changed. Uh, and one thinks, uh, as I speak, about the 10 p.m. pub curfew uh, advice. That point could, it seems to me, provide problems with causation in future cases. A concrete example is that the two-metre social distancing rule does not constitute hindrance, uh, as it was not legally binding advice under the regulations. I turn now to the third category, and that's the question of the public health emergency. Here, the policyholder in relation to several policies failed uh, where the wording required the existence of an incident within the stated geographical areas, as opposed to a state of affairs or an emergency. And a discussion of that you'll find at paragraph 404. In relation to clauses which referred to incident, the court concluded that those clauses provided, using their words at paragraph 406, a narrow localized cover intended to ensure events or incidents which occur with, on that occasion, the one-mile radius. So an important aspect there as to the scope of the clause, whether it refers more generally to a state of affairs or an emergency, as against a more specific event, such as a trigger. So I'll now summarize um, at the end of this podcast some of the points which have arisen out of um, the prevention of access guidance. The first is really that the court has given some clarity uh, in this area. It, in particular, in relation to the importance of the analysis of the insured peril, the restrictive interpretation of the word prevention, the need for legally binding nature of central or local government advice, uh, and the uh, dismissal of claims based on event or incidents within a geographical area. This is welcome. Uh, the extent to which the Supreme Court considers that it is able to give general principle guidance over and above that given by this two-judge court in the area will be interesting. Uh, I would be surprised if the Supreme Court considered its function was to determine the construction of individual policy wordings, but it may well decide that in the current situation, the establishment and endorsement of more general themes, such as the ones that I have endeavoured to identify in this short podcast, is a matter of public general importance. However, in the final analysis, cover will depend upon the construction of specific policy wordings in question. The devil will remain in the policy wording. So I hope you found this podcast interesting as a useful navigation tool for this topic and indeed this case, and that it's whetted your appetite for similar podcasts on disease clauses and trend and trend causation clauses from 39 Essex Chambers. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.